a loophole that they've slipped through in the regulatory process because most drugs require pharmacokinetic studies and that has not been done with the COVID-19 vaccines because they've been called vaccines. Today I sit down with Dr. Tess Lurie, co-founder of the World Council for Health. She argues the COVID-19 vaccines must be halted immediately and that they are not really vaccines but are instead gene therapies. So myocarditis is inflammation. The broader picture is that inflammation is happening in every organ and tissue of the body. Tonight, she breaks down what independent researchers have found and what people can do if they are worried about their own health or the health of their neighbors. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Tess Lurie, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Tess, you have been one of the people on the forefront of advocating for early treatment of COVID. For starters, why don't you just tell me a little bit about who you are, where do you come from, and, uh, and why this is so important to you? Jan, I'm a medical doctor and scientist, and I've been working really as a guideline methodologist, which is actually a, a long uh, word for um, someone who evaluates um, research and then presents it in a recognized format, basically an evidence to decision framework to a panel of experts and other stakeholders to help them make a recommendation on whether to adopt an intervention or not, a treatment or not for a condition. So I've been doing this as an external consultant to the World Health Organization for a better part of 10 years as an external consultant. So, you know, I and my company would be hired to do this work. We have no conflicts of interest. We've never worked for Big Pharma. And when COVID came along, it was clear that uh, there was no evidence based to the strategies that were being promoted by the authorities, by the World Health Organization and governments. And so I became interested um, in seeing how I could help and assist, you know, uh, to promote evidence-based strategies. And my opportunity came when I saw Dr. Pierre Corey's testimony in front of the U.S. Senate asking to, that ivermectin be, be used. And, uh, and so I was fairly intrigued as to why a doctor should have to plead with politicians to use a safe old medicine. It's been around for ages. And so I did a rapid review of the available evidence, and it was clear that it really should be used. 
um, and um, there wasn't much to lose by giving it a try. But you're also involved in this kind of uh, global, I don't know if it's an organization or effort. Maybe you can tell me about that. So when, uh, after we'd done the review, the systematic review on ivermectin, and, and, uh, and also we did um, what's called the evidence to decision framework, and we presented this to the authorities, including your NIH and FDA, um, via email, and we were totally ignored. Uh, the evidence was totally ignored, and then they came out with, you know, this nonsense about ivermectin being a horse medicine and uh, and not safe for humans and so on. And uh, and there was this huge social media campaign against ivermectin and the notion of early treatment for COVID. And not only that, you know, as we progressed through 2020. Uh, it was clear that the COVID vaccines were not safe and they were not ready for for mass rollout. There was clear evidence to me and colleagues that um, lockdowns were not necessary, that masks were not necessary, that there was early treatment for COVID and that the COVID injections were harmful uh, and not ready for widespread use. And we had to get those messages to the public. So we needed another platform. So World Council for Health is actually a grassroots organization. It's, it's uh, independent, uh, ethical doctors, scientists, and um, lawyers, members of the public, activists, and patients now who are informing the, um, the uh, information that's shared. Um, it's not a, a World Health Organization type of centralized uh, imposition of health guidance to anybody, it's really facilitating discussion, conversation about what works, what doesn't, how to get healthy. And not only that, uh, you know, we're em empowering people to look at issues around freedom and sovereignty as well. When it comes to the uh, COVID-19 uh, genetic vaccines, what is the state of the evidence at this moment in terms of their efficacy and also in terms of their safety? I've been monitoring the World Health Organization's database since January 2021 in terms of the COVID vaccines. In actual fact, I started looking at it because of ivermectin. So I wanted to see how safe was ivermectin historically. And in the UK, they have what's called the yellow card scheme. And these are not, uh, you know, they, they're databases that record adverse events. They're not, uh, they don't have a denominator. So you can't say, oh, well, 10% of people have uh, an adverse reaction. But they are a measure, and they provide a safety signal, um, especially uh, in the numbers that we are seeing. It's actually required by these authorities to do safety audits um, at least every two years. Uh, but in an, in an emergency like we have with experimental injections being rolled out, you would, you would hope that it would be more frequent. So um, currently on the World Health Organization Vigi Access Database, there are over four and a half million reports of adverse reactions. And, uh, and on our UK database, we have, they've actually um, stopped updating it. But when we last looked in July, there were about 450,000 adverse reactions. So uh, aside from, from just those uh, reports, which suggests that, you know, a safety signal uh, is, uh, is present. I mean, if you just look at the number of adverse reactions, for example, um, and the number of deaths, um, we have um, 
in the region of 40,000 deaths reported in association with the vaccines. And whilst one recognizes that it's not causal, and you can't determine a causal relationship, you know, the sheer numbers demand some uh, evaluation and a pause at the very least, or attention by the authorities. You know, with the swine flu vaccination um, in, in the 70s, it was, took 50 deaths uh, for them to recall that product. We actually have a, a pharmacovigilance report, I'll just hold it up, which can be found on the website, which basically, uh, it was done in June, so it's not the latest and up to date, but in that, based on the, the breadth of the data across the different databases, so it looks at VAERS, um, the uh, VIGI Access World Health Organization database, and the UK database, um, there's, there's really um, plenty of evidence to show that they should be recalled. We have at least 40,000 deaths reported across the different databases. There are a number of countries and states, um, in the US, at least one in the US, where the recommendation for uh, young people, and especially you know, younger men, even up to, I think, 39 in the case of Florida, where the genetic vaccination is not recommended anymore. Um, now, so the, the, this is kind of directionally correct, but not, not the whole story. We see, as with Florida, we see, you know, um, no vaccinations for the, you know, younger men. I think it's between the age of 18 and 39. So, but in actual fact, it's really not enough because we are seeing harms across the age spectrum. All, all age groups are experiencing harms. So um, it's really not enough to say that the vaccines are safe for one group and not another. Um, they are not safe fundamentally in their essence, in the way they are designed. If you look at, at how they are meant to work, they are not vaccines. And the reason why they, they have been approved so quickly is because they've been called vaccines. And that's meant that they haven't needed to go through or haven't apparently needed to go through. They've slipped through. There's a loophole that they've slipped through uh, in the regulatory process because most drugs require pharmacokinetic studies. And the pharmacokinetic studies for vaccines include immunological studies. So pharmacokinetics is, is how a drug behaves in the body, how it moves throughout the body. So how, it's, um, how long it takes to be cleared from the body, how it's excreted from the body, how it distributes in the body. And that has not been done with the COVID-19 vaccines because they've been called vaccines. If they'd been called gene therapies, which is what they are, because I'll explain why, uh, the, they, they would have required uh, biodistribution, pharmacokinetics, as I've explained, and immunological studies. So all these uh, manufacturers have been required to do is to show that the product they inject gives an immune reaction. It gets an immune response. Um, they have not been required to show how it distributes around the body. And we know from, the, from a, an FOI FOIA request from Japan um, by, by Dr. Brian Bridal in Canada that these injections accumulate in certain tissues in rats. So all we have is a little rat study to go on from uh, 2020 that shows that the contents of these COVID-19 injections accumulate in the ovaries uh, and in the liver and so on, but in high concentrations in the ovaries, and we don't actually know to what extent because the animals were terminated after 48 hours. 
So we have studies done in rats that were only done for 48 hours that showed alarming accumulation of COVID vaccines in ovaries and other sensitive tissues like bone marrow and uh, liver and spleen and testes, of course. Um, and um, and uh, we've had no, nothing further done and nothing um, done in human beings. Because you seem very definitive about saying these vaccines need to be paused, right, for further research. This is essentially Dr. Asim Malatra's uh, position. Explain to me the evidence that you're seeing. Um, I, it's easy to explain the evidence that one is not seeing because there was never the evidence um, before they were rolled out to support their use. So we didn't have adequate animal studies. The phase one studies were rolled into the phase two studies without publishing results, without showing results. The phase two studies are rolled into the phase three studies. And the phase three studies, the control group was, was eliminated. Uh, and uh, after a couple of months, uh, the control group was given the active uh, experimental treatment. So, and then it was just rolled out to millions and billions of people around the world. So we did, a, did an analysis of the UK database in May last year, and we broke the, the data down by, by symptom and pathology group. So we looked at bleeding and clotting. We looked at neurological adverse events. We looked at pain. We looked at reproductive issues. We looked at um, sensory, visual, um, uh, nasal taste, and all of those sorts. Because these were the things that we were hearing anecdotally. And when we looked at that, there was a, there was a huge preponderance of neurological disease. Um, and there was a, a, the other thing we looked at was um, uh, immune system. Uh, disease, so, um, so autoimmunity, uh, infection, inflammation, and so on. So those are the sort of broad categories. And when one looked at it like that, um, it became so clear that um, uh, for, that mo most of the deaths were due to bleeding and clotting. Just bleeding, clotting, and ischemic, which is when a blood vessel gets blocked and, and can't, uh, you know, and you don't, you don't have perfusion to the tissue. We're hearing we're having dis uh, diseases or conditions picked out and, and examined, for example, myocarditis has become something that's very widely discussed. But the broader picture is that um, my, so myocarditis is inflammation, um, and that inflammation is happening in every organ and tissue of the body. It's not just in the heart. In some people, it's manifesting in the heart, but in others, it's manifesting as um, vasculitis. The, the blood vessels are, are inflamed, um, the, the gut's inflamed, the liver's inflamed, so the lung's inflamed, so the brain. So we're, so we're seeing the same pathology throughout, but obviously if it happens in the heart, uh, it's, um, you know, it's very easy to detect. Uh, uh, joints as well, you know, we're seeing lots of arthritis and, and joint issues. So, um, so that that so it's, it's it's more when you're looking at the side effects. When you break it down like that, you you can see the pattern. It's inflammation. It's clotting. And what struck what struck us when we looked at the UK uh, data, were that there's there was clotting in all sorts of vessels. So it's not just in the brain because there had been there had been some discussion early on about blood clots in the brain. Um, 
and, uh, and we were assured that it was very rare. But in actual fact, blood clots were happening all over. When you looked at the database, there were blood clots in large vessels like the aorta, you know, which is you know, fairly rare, uh, and the spleen and the liver and, um, and right down to the perif peripheries. Um, so um, it's, it's more, uh, the pathology is systemic. It's affecting um, the, the, whole, um, the whole body because it's, um, the spike protein's been made in all, in all in any cells, um, not, uh, certainly not in the arm. I just wanted to say about the auto, about the immune stuff, um, we, we're seeing, so it's not just the inflammation, we're seeing, because the, the, we're seeing a lot of autoimmune disease, and that just makes sense, because uh, if you think your body is, a, your cells are making the spike protein, and then your body's making the cells to attack your, or the, and, the, and the antibodies to attack your own cells. And then the other thing is, of course, um, because the immune system's so busy um, fighting this foreign spike protein, um, you, you also have um, a lot of uh, latent infections, herpes and um, Epstein-Barr shingles, uh, you know, popping up um, because uh, the immune system's suppressed, not um, boosted. So, you know, these are the sort of patterns of disease that one's seeing. Um, it's very important for pregnant women and women who are wishing to become pregnant also to realize that there were no uh, studies done on pregnant animals, uh, let alone um, pregnant women, to determine whether the COVID vaccines are safe. And because there's, there's many reasons to, there's many mechanisms of action to support what we're seeing on the databases, which is a lot of miscarriages, fetal morbidity, a lot of uh, deaths, um, a lot of um, fertility issues. And one of the reasons for this, the spike protein is similar to a placental protein. Uh, and so if your body is making antibodies to the spike protein, your body could be making antibodies to the placental protein. And so uh, it might make it difficult to maintain a pregnancy. And so um, if you are uh, wanting to become uh, pregnant, it would be best not to take the COVID vaccine because you don't want to have um, antibodies to, the, to your placenta, to the placenta that you, you make. The other thing, of course, is, is to remember that in the rat studies that were done um, uh, by Pfizer uh, and that the, you know, the FOIA request revealed in, uh, from Japan, um, there's a concentration of the uh, uh, vaccine product in the ovaries um, and, and the testes. You know, you only get a, a given number of, of uh, eggs when you're born as a woman. And so um, if you're going to have uh, antibodies being made to, and you're going to have uh, con vaccine contents in the ovaries, is that going to lead to scarring? Is it going to affect fertility? Well, we don't know. So if we don't know, we shouldn't uh, take the product. A lot of this comes down to it really being kind of a risk-benefit calculation, right? And, you know, you're basically, what you're outlining to me here is that there is a lot of risk that is, in many cases, as of yet, untested. And the benefit, especially to younger people, is, is, is minimal. 
as, as I understand yeah. it. It doesn't seem to be really a risk-benefit relationship. It seems to be a risk-risk relationship. There doesn't seem to be a benefit to these injections. Why on earth is this thing, if this COVID injection is so effective, do we have to take them so frequently? They don't work. The benefit is not there. The risks are tremendous and are uh, being revealed every day. You know, what we really need now is to focus on um, alerting the, the public to not taking any more jabs and, um, and helping those people who have been harmed and also examining these databases to see what we can expect because we have no long-term data. So we've only been uh, giving these shots for two years. So what, what can we expect to see in three, four, five years and 10 years time? Um, this is what we need to be, be looking at. So you're saying basically that there seems to be this sort of um, global coordinated effort in terms of the rollout or in terms of the policies or guidelines at least. Um, can you kind of expand on that a little bit and explain to me what you're seeing? When I started on this journey, of, you know, the last two years, I think like many, I, I um, wasn't, I didn't have the big picture and I would say there've been lots of pieces, it's almost like a puzzle coming together um, when, because obviously the, originally the questions were, you know, what basis was COVID a pandemic? You know, it didn't seem like there was the basis to declare it a pandemic in the first place. And then the lockdowns and the, you know, these uh, draconian measures, the masking and, and all of that, it just, um, nothing really made sense. And I think many people um, probably still struggling with that sense making thing. So, um, Things started to fall into place for me, well, when I became aware of the sort of coordinated corruption behind um, uh, the suppression of, of ivermectin, the power the pharmaceutical companies had over the journals, because we obviously tried in the, in the early part of 2021 to get um, publications out on ivermectin. We saw uh, ivermectin being um, being, the, the publications being suppressed uh, and uh, authors being discredited and so on. Uh, whereas if you had a negative study on ivermectin, it would get published in a, in a top journal like JAMA. But then, of course, the World Health Organization um, came out with this uh, uh, pandemic treaty. And then things started to fall into place. And of course, you know, in the background, one had the World Economic Forum uh, speaking about um, its plans for humanity in terms of being, uh, being chipped and surveilled and all of that. The big picture basically is that um, the World Health Organization is a controlled organization, is controlled by corporate influence and interests, corporate and uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party uh, influence and uh, Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab. And so this pandemic treaty, which they've, they've sort of drafted and they're, they're planning to or trying to get countries to sign up to, um, it involves um, the uh, World Health Organization declaring and determining what constitutes a pandemic. So they have in mind, we're going to have face a number of pandemics, even though pandemics are generally terribly rare. And, um, and uh, they've uh, changed the definition to <laughs> accommodate a series of pandemics that they anticipate. And, uh, and then once they've declared the pandemic, they get to decide how it gets managed. So they get to decide 
uh, how the quarantine measures look, how uh, many of these 100-day uh, vaccines people need to take, and who gets those contracts to develop the vaccines, and then how the measures are enforced. So, um, so this uh, treaty is, is being prepared alongside amendments to the international health regulations. Now, the amendments to the international health regula regulations were, were um, first drafted in 2005. And in May this year, it was a U.S. initiative to change 13 of the amendments to the international health regulations of 2005. And, and one of those amendments is to um, give the Director General um, of the World Health Organization the power to declare an actual or potential health emergency. So you can imagine that the enormous power that that has, that, that that gives a single man. And then once this health emergency actual potential um, would be declared, um, governments would have uh, 48 hours to decide or accept the offer of collaboration by the World Health Organization. If they did not wish to collaborate with the World Health Organization, they would have to explain their reasons why. They'd have to give a rationale as to why they didn't want to accept this collaboration. So those are just a couple of the things. Uh, the other thing is um, th these documents facilitate um, proactive surveillance of um, potential actual health emergencies. So you can see there's this there's the system uh, that's set up. And as I say, with so surveillance not only of um, external threats but of uh, genetic data. This is a, a new um, phrase that's been added, and also the um, digital uh, passports. So digital d data. Uh, that would um, be um, with or in all of us. It very much seems that the World Health Organization is one of many tools that is being used by the globalists to, um, to formalize their, uh, their control and their, their, this aim to have a, a one world government and a one health system, and people say, you know, they, 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 they can't get their head around it. They think, well, this must be a conspiracy and um, or a conspiracy theory, but it is a conspiracy, certainly. Um, and um, most people uh, seem to um, be unaware. And this is one of the themes I've kind of noticed over the last few years. There's been all sorts of terms that have been redefined. You also mentioned uh, that, you know, vaccine has been redefined. Um, what other terms have been redefined? Well, um, so pandemic uh, used to be something that caused uh, an infection that caused a lot of deaths. It's now just uh, an infection, a new bug going around. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine the implication of that. Oh, there's a new bug going around. Everybody go home, stay home, uh, you know, lock yourselves away and wear a mask until we say it's safe to come out. Um, vaccine, um, uh, herd immunity has been, been redefined. And it used to be uh, that uh, herd immunity was something that was sort of something that could occur naturally. Now it's being uh, associated with, with vaccination only. Um, I promised that I would say earlier, I would tell you a bit more about how these vaccines work and why they are not vaccines as we know them. And this is because a traditional vaccine 
uses a protein or antigen um, and it's injected into the arm muscle, your body responds to it um, with uh, antibodies and T cells, and, uh, and then you, you uh, have immunity. Um, but with these uh, new types of vaccines, if we're going to call them vaccines, with, um, they, um, they are actually gene therapies. They used to be, uh, you know, they used to be investigated for cancer. So that, that was how they were originally in, intended. Uh, it contains a, a gene. A gene is, is like a recipe. Um, and in the body, it, it uses the body's um, materials and, and mechanisms to make the, the product. So, um, so this uh, injection goes, or substance goes into the arm muscle, but it circulates within the bloodstream very quickly, um, within hours and days. And, uh, and then this gene that gets into the cells of the body, wherever, um, the lining of the blood vessels and the tissues, uh, it then uses the, the cells mechanisms or machinery to make the protein, to make spike protein. Uh, and then the theory is that your body then makes antibodies to the spike protein, but the antibodies are in your cells. So your body makes antibodies to the, your own cells that are containing the spike protein. Uh, and this, uh, this sets up an inflammatory reaction. So it's like uh, COVID in a way, uh, uh, in, in the sense that the spike protein is a, is a product like, uh, you know, from COVID. And we know that um, with COVID, you have um, you can get multi-system inflammation and clotting and that if you don't treat it early. Um, but these vaccines give you trillions of copies of this recipe. So you're making much more spike protein, or you may be making much more than you would you would make with um, with uh, getting COVID. And also, it keeps making it. So we don't know how long it takes. Obviously, it's going to differ from person to person. But the drug companies have not done the studies and said the, um, the contents of these injections and their products are cleared within X number of days, months, years. So all of these, these questions are unanswered. And it seems as if it's been left up to independent scientists to have to uh, explore them and reveal them. In actual fact, we have this weird situation where we have independent science, where, where the drug companies are saying, here's our product. The regulatory authorities are saying, thank you very much, and signing the, the thing. And it's up to the in, independent doctors and scientists and the public to prove that the, 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 the drug's not safe instead of the other way around. <laughs> the pharmaceutical companies should be proving that their product is safe, and it's not. Does the World Council for Health, how big is the organization? We have uh, 170 or more organizations in, in 45 countries. Some of them are really small organizations with a lot of output. Some of them are large organizations and uh, with you know international um, groups. We don't charge groups to be members with us. It's a coalition, so everybody's autonomous. It's not as if there's a, a central imposition. And what we do ask, though, is that the groups subscribe to a better way of doing things. And, um, and uh, you know, that is the mission, really. Our mission is to empower them in their countries with the resources they need to 
um, inform their leaders, to, uh, to inform the public. Uh, and, um, and ultimately, you know, our aim is to decentralize responsibility for health to, to, those, uh, to our country partners, to uh, countries, to communities, and to the individual. You know, our goal is really for everyone to be their own counsel for health, so they don't need to outsource their decision-making to corrupt authorities. And how did you come up with uh, your positions uh, in, in this umbrella or meta-organization? Well, we have uh, expert committees. So we have a science and medical committee. We have a law and activism committee. We have an ethics committee. Um, we have... Um, a youth committee, um, and we have a mind health committee. And these committees meet weekly, they discuss current affairs, they have feedback to us. One of our, our key sort of mission documents is, um, is called the Seven Principles of a Better Way, or the Better Way Charter. And this document was formulated, it was a key output of our meeting. We had a conference in May in Bath, in person, um, called the Better Way Conference, and I've actually I've got a little leaflet here that we share. Um, it's very it's really very very simple. The the, the route out of the current predicament um, uh, is really um, changing the way we um, show up in the world. Number one is we act in honor and we do no harm. Now that's you know it's usually the reserve of you know we we sort of demand that of doctors, but nobody else uh, has to act in honor and do no harm. So everybody needs to needs to try uh, their best to, to do no harm, to do no harm to others and to themselves. Um, we're free and we have free will, so we take responsibility for our our lives our, and, our, and our health and our choices. Uh, we're part of nature. I think we tend to forget that, especially when we live in cities which are concretized and we have all this tech around us. Um, we, you know, spirituality is, is absolutely integral to our well-being. And, um, you know, many people, uh, they, they sort of disregard that idea. But we actually thrive when our lives have conscious meaning and purpose. And, you know, if you haven't got a good reason to wake up, and you tend to feel very um, disconnected and, and isolated. So um, we thrive together. We actually like diversity, and we don't need to name it and categorize it and break it down. Um, we... we um, we value different perspectives. We're being conditioned that you have to take a position. You have to choose one or the other. Uh, you have to be uh, pro-vax or anti-vax. You, you know, you, you have to be, um, you know, woke or. or not. They just, it just seems all the time we're forced to take a position. In actual fact, you don't have to take a position. We actually like each other. We like having discussions and conversations, and that's how we refine our knowledge and our wisdom. So um, at number seven, the last one is, is that we, um, we use technology with discernment. So tech is great, but we need to use it for the benefit of people and the planet. There is a, a footnote, and that is that, you know, we don't tolerate um, the violation of our inalienable rights and freedoms, like freedom of speech and um, travel and so on. What has been the response uh, to, you know, the work of you and your organization uh, by, you know, let's say both uh, country and uh, these multilateral health authorities? We never anticipated it would be quite so um, 
successful. But, um, you know, people are just so appreciative and grateful for some positivity and for, for an alternative route because we're being faced with, uh, with dystopia like we've never seen before. And there seems to be this sort of degrading of, um, of who we are as human beings, a degrading of our moral fiber and this kind of apparent consensus that everybody is good with it, you know. But in actual fact, when you do hold up the picture and, and the memory of who we are and how people remember who they are, you know, courageous and spirited and kind and loving um, and compassionate, um, people can step into it. They can step away from the fear. But what about, what's the response of the UK health system or the WHO or some of these multilateral organizations? Well, I have to just say, the reason we started the World Council for Health is for the people. It's for, you know, it's, uh, we're a grassroots organization and our intention is to inform and help and support initiatives at grassroots level uh, because the authorities were not listening. So they're still not listening, but they, they can't ignore us because when we do um, write an open letter to the WHO and demand participation, you know, that there's more public participation in their decision making, they do step up and say, okay, we'll have a public participation and then it's sort of a two hours poultry affair. But nevertheless, uh, it is a response to the work that we're doing. So certainly um, we are being noticed and I'm sure um, uh, that we will continue to be noticed. Uh, one, one way that I'm, you know, as I say, the, as I've said previously, the, the corporate um, powers that be um, are very much um, working with these authorities. We've been censored on Twitter, we've been censored on, on, on YouTube, um, Vimeo, uh, Facebook and others. So yes, we are being noticed for sure. Um, what about some of the doctors that, I mean, let, why don't we start here? You know, what about your career? You said, you know, have you been personally censored? Have you encountered other uh, uh, reactions like career-wise and so forth? Doctors uh, who are speaking out and um, adhering to their Hippocratic oath and the principles are, are being uh, persecuted all over the world. Um, my um, experience seems quite um, mild compared to what others have experienced, but I will just speak briefly to that. Um, I was never on social media, and early on in January 2021, I posted a video, I think it had about 2,000 views and was taken down. Um, it was a video to our Prime Minister saying that there is a safe, effective treatment for COVID, and please could we have a meeting. This is a letter for Mr. Johnson. Dear Prime Minister, my name is Dr. Tess Laurie and I'm the Director of the Evidence-Based Medicine Consultancy in Bath. My business conducts industry-independent medical evidence synthesis to support international clinical practice guidelines. My biggest clients are the National Health Service and the World Health Organization. I have recently authored a report called Ivermectin for Preventing and Treating COVID-19 a rapid review to validate the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance's conclusions. In connection with its findings, I sent an urgent correspondence to Mr. Hancock and other members of Parliament on Monday the 3rd of January. 
and then it just sort of snowballed after that. I basically was censored on People couldn't interview me on, on YouTube because um, YouTube would, would uh, cancel them and um, or demonetize them. I gave a lecture um, at an academic institution on um, the state of, of, of basically COVID and the state of evidence-based medicine. And, um, and there was a complaint put into the General Medical Council about uh, what I said about vaccine adverse events. So, um, so, uh, so that's my story, but there are doctors facing much worse. And I'm not, I'm not practicing clinically, so I'm not worried about losing my license to practice. Um, but there are doctors who are practicing clinically who've been saving thousands of lives during COVID. I'm thinking particularly of Dr. Jackie Stone, who's in Zimbabwe, and she currently faces imprisonment um, unjustly for treating people um, with ivermectin and colloidal silver and managing to keep people out of hospital and alive and well. Um, so, uh, and also Dr. Peter McCullough's just lost his license, Dr. Paul Marek. Uh, they are doctors in, in, um, in Asia, in the Philippines and Malaysia who are also facing threats. And just to be clear, I think it's uh, uh, Peter McCullough's, uh, it was his board certifications that were uh, basically pulled, but I think he still may have his license. Um, but I mean, the, the general kind of theme here is that, that people are facing repercussions for pursuing early treatment and uh, criticizing the, you know, sort of rollout of vaccines and the, them in maintaining their presence in the market. Yes, um, you know, just for wanting to have the conversation about the safety of the vaccines seems to be sufficient to be hauled before um, your, you know, regulatory uh, body. So I've seen some of the resources that you've developed as part of the World Council for Health, and uh, uh, maybe uh, you can kind of tell me a little bit about them, what people, we're, we'll link to them, you know, on our streaming platform as well, so people can access them. But this is actually quite useful information for folks. Yes, thanks, Jan. Most people in the UK certainly know there's something up with these COVID injections. We've never had them like so many, even for flu, you don't have to get so many. And, and many people know of friends who've not been feeling or family members who've not been feeling that well. And also for many people who have, who are aware that they're, you know, who are virtually aware that they're harmful, they don't uh, know how to communicate that message and how people put two and two together. So we have a, a number of resources. So um, the one is, um, you know, this one here, if you've been feeling um, unwell since your COVID-19 vaccine, you're not alone. And then it's, it's a list, you know, some people are experiencing unexplained symptoms that include headache and vision problems, brain fog, heart issues, uh, and so on. So, and then it, it, um, it refers them to support groups. So we have uh, a number of patient groups that are part of our coalition. And uh, these include Real Not Rare, um, React 19, UK CV Family. And, uh, and these are support groups, usually mostly run by vaccine injured people. And, um, and so this is a leaflet that really you know, helps people uh, navigate their way to support groups. Um, we've got um, this one here, which is if you're worried about um, 
the COVID vaccine or spike protein, don't worry, there are solutions. And because you know many health experts have been working on solutions for well over a year now uh, and are coming forward with their uh, experiences. So, um, and, uh, and that links to our website where the, there's a detox protocol that people can follow, but also on that, it has links to other resources that, and other people's websites like the Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance, and they have an excellent protocol on their website, which I'm sure you're aware of um, for people who, um, who are suffering from vaccine injury or long COVID, you know. We have this uh, also just a, a, a brief, uh, it's a summary guide basically of the detox summary, um, uh, easy to, you know, easy to, to access and share. So those are great resources for, um, for sharing with uh, neighbors or keeping in your health, if you're a health practitioner, just keeping it in your surgery and offering to, to others. Um, we have this, which was, this was the document we launched with in September last year. Um, which is our at-home COVID, early COVID treatment guidelines. And uh, it's been, um, been downloaded, uh, uh, I think, a million times at least. We also have a, a leaflet, which I don't seem to have with me here, on, um, on uh, at-home COVID care. And it's, it's literally just a two-page on, and it's got a little shopping list of things that you can get over the counter if you have COVID. In actual fact, especially for you guys and us in the Northern Hemisphere, we are expecting a, a really... A tough winter. You can see COVID rates are actually going up, not down. If you watch the news, you'd think COVID was over. Well, COVID's uh, more, um, there's more COVID now than there ever was. And we, in the, in the UK, um, we are seeing uh, an uptick, not only in COVID, but also in excess deaths. So, um, uh, which um, many of us um, believe are due to the COVID-19 injections. Um, and we are, we, are, we are waiting for the government to put two and two together on that too. But we've had a 20% increase in excess deaths um, recently, week on week, um, which in the UK, we're a small country, it's the equivalent to an excess deaths of, uh, of a 737 crashing every day of the week. And then we have this, um, we have this leaflet, and uh, this is more general because... Um, not everyone, but I think many people are feeling that things are spiraling out of control. So, um, so this uh, is um, this takes a little a little tip from Elvis Presley. Actually, uh, when things go wrong, don't go with them. And it has on the back. It basically has a it has a, a little list. Um, this is a resource called Source. It's a new website. It's currently in our. It's in a testing phase, but there are a number of resources up there already um, to do with sustenance, to do with medical stuff you need to keep at home in case of emergency, uh, up and go essentials if you've got to pack your bag and leave, um, and resources, what do you do about money and trading and that sort of thing in the event of a financial crash, community, uh, you know, what are the skill sets in your community and how can you harness those and, and, and um, contribute. Uh, so getting to know your neighborhood and your community and also issues around power, what to do if the power goes out. So, um, so that's um, sourced by World Council for Health and, uh, and it's called our Thrive Guide. Let's talk a little bit about this excess mortality. We've talked about this on the show. This is not just a UK phenomenon. This is a phenomenon we're seeing in other countries as well. Um, clearly, there, it's a multifaceted phenomenon. Um, you know, there's sort of impacts of, for example, you know, various types of treatments or even like checkups that weren't done during these shelter-in-place lockdown policies. You believe that 
the vaccine harms play into that, but it's actually a, a broader thing, isn't it? Yes, certainly there could be many factors. So, you know, there's a fallout of lockdowns, um, which could affect mental health. So we could have, uh, you know, suicides and uh, uh, mental health issues contributing to that. Obviously, the the vaccine harms is the fact that, you know, in, in the UK, we have one in five um, people um, or between five and 10 people on a waiting list for some kind of procedure or other. So if you've got cancer and you're waiting to have your tumor cut out and it takes you a year to get your op, you know, and you die in the meantime, well, that, you know, that's uh, another fact. And that's, you know, also partly to do with uh, the, the lockdowns. We always have had a long waiting list, but that's that's been uh, that's much worse. So people are not getting the treatments that they've that they've needed. So yeah, it is a multifactorial thing, um, and we might never know, you know, what what the what the causes, especially when it comes to something like cancer, because um, uh, doctors are seeing an increase in um, in cancers, uh, and and this is really it's. One can call it anecdotal, but it's the only evidence we have. You know, yesterday I spoke with Dr. Tina Pierce, who's a she's a, runs a clinic MCAS and long COVID clinic in uh, near London, and she she was saying that she's seeing um, she used to see one uh, woman with breast cancer in her in fact she runs a menopause clinic as well in, in a couple of years. Now she's seeing she said she's seen 11 since April. So doctors are seeing far more uh, cancers. Uh, and, and far quicker as well. So people who've been in remission and then they're having a, a, a recurrence and, and, and rapidly fulminating, rapidly malignant cancers. So this, this all makes sense from a, mechani a mechanism of action point of view of, of these COVID injections because they suppress the immune system. And this includes, you know, cancer is, it flourishes because of, of suppressed immune, immunity. So. Um, so you could argue, you know, you might have someone say, oh, well, it's not, it's because cancers are, are, haven't been looked after. Well, we're never, we're not going to know, um, uh, but the COVID injections could very well be contributing to the cancers that we are seeing now. So where can people find you? Uh, we have a World Council for Health website, um, which has uh, many resources. We also have a live streamed Monday General Assembly meeting. So every Monday, we you can find us online through through our newsroom on the website. It's usually a two, two, two and a half hour meeting, and we have loads of experts and uh, fun discussions, conversations around what's going on and how you can improve your health. Uh, and then finally, we also have, I have a sub stack. I don't do scientific writing much anymore, uh, mainly just write in conversation uh, about um, uh, my perspective on things. Uh, it's called A Better Way to Health with Dr. Tess Laurie, and uh, I hope people will subscribe to that. Thanks, Jan. Dr. Tess Laurie, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you very much, Jan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all for joining Dr. Tess Laurie and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.